continue our way through this uh, letter from Paul to the Corinthians and through this series within a series, uh, specifically on this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. It's back to 1 Corinthians 13 that I invite you to turn with me to page 959 in your pew Bible. I hope that you're not growing weary of taking our time, turning over every rock in this chapter. Believe it or not, uh, much more could be said. Someone was joking uh, last week, I think it was, that uh, we may be hearing one day soon a sermon on uh, Love Part 17. Uh, I, uh, I doubt that we'll go that far, but then I certainly had not anticipated that uh, uh, when we began our way in this chapter on the first Sunday of this year that uh, we would find ourselves two months later on Part 9. But I find myself in agreement with one of you who commented that these weeks have been uh, like looking at the many facets of a beautiful jewel. And in fact, one of my commentaries says exactly the same thing, that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is sort of like a diamond into many facets or like the spectrum of light that uh, is released by the prism as light passes through it. Well, may God continue to show us love in all its dimensions. Uh, Elder, I mean, uh, Deacon Shields has already prayed aptly for the Lord's blessing. So let's go with confidence to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three But the greatest of these is love. Maybe you notice that in verse 7, we come to something of a crescendo, a climax in this chapter. It reminds me uh, something of the grand finale at a firework show where one firework fires right after another in rapid succession. Only we find out it's not the finale, but so grand is the choreography of that part of the firework show, its intensity, uh, you think can hardly get any better. That is verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Is Paul just going into a a dizzying, rapid-fire 
sort of off the top of his head here? I don't think so. In fact, this verse shows the evidence, the earmarks of careful thought and planning on Paul's part by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Four facets of the diamond sparkle here, but not randomly. There seems to be a pattern. The first and last of the four seem very closely related to each other, don't they? Bearing all things and enduring all things. They're not identical, but they're certainly close. And then in the middle, these two, believing all things, hoping all things, also seem very closely related, don't they? Faith and hope are a natural pair. At least in God's kingdom, they are. So what Paul may be doing here is something that he himself has seen often in reading his Bible. And that is the the use of a literary technique that is often referred to as chiastic structure, where a verse or series of verses actually mirror each other. Uh, The similar themes showing up on the outsides at the beginning and end, and then in the middles, and then in the centers of that passage. If you outline such a passage, it reads A, B, C, C, B, A. Here it is simpler, just four points, A, B, B, A. Bearing and enduring at the beginning and end, and believing and hoping in the center. Enough about that, and if I've thoroughly confused you, then come and talk to me later. I'll try to make it uh, make a little more sense. But at any rate, we'll start this morning at the center of verse 7, and continue, the Lord willing, next week with the outsides. So for today, love believes all things, love hopes all things. First, love believes all things. Now, At first blush, this uh, might be misconstrued to mean that uh, love is gullible, love is foolish, that love is marked by a wide-eyed credulity, ready to believe anything and everything, even things that are patently and clearly false. That's not what Paul is after. That is not love. But... This is still a radical thing we're talking about here. What he's describing, not the natural stance by any means of fallen human beings that we might take toward one another or even toward God. We're too used to being on our guard. We're ready to be be taken advantage of, ready to be ripped off and conned by others. Some of us have become cynical even as a result of the burns we've suffered from taking others at face value, trusting, believing them, only to find out that they were lying through their teeth to get the better of us, to use us, or abuse us. Or simply, it could be that they've let us down and disappointed us terribly. Not long ago, I had a very deeply cynical Christian say to me, John, give, give anyone long enough and they will let you down. They will turn on you. They will burn you. I wondered, frankly, when he said that, whether he was making exception for a present company or not. Uh, although I'm fairly confident that... Um, that I myself will find myself included 
in that number of people who have not only uh, disappointed him in the long run, if I have not already. That's simply the typical fallen human perspective, but not the Christian one. The Christian life is not a comfortable one. It's not a life guarded and safe behind the locked and bolted doors of our heart, insulated from all risk or potential harm. No, the Christian life is a radical one, including this, maybe centrally this. It is lived by a love that is completely trusting. And since the love to which Jesus calls us is first and above all love for God and then love for others, think with me about this. First, we love God. And how do we love God? Well, Jesus says we love him by obeying him, and we've already talked about that. But we also love God by trusting him, by believing all things that he says, and more than that, believing him. Believing, trusting in him. We take him at his word because we take him. And because he takes us. As a bride entrusts herself to her husband. And I see you husbands, I hope, taking notice, embracing yourselves like men. But as... As a bride entrusts herself to her husband, so we entrust ourselves to him. But as any wife will tell you, trusting, believing is not always easy, even with the best of husbands. God is the best husband of all. He's the perfect husband to us, the bride. But he's not, therefore, entirely predictable, is he? Or comfortable, or even, if you'll understand what I'm saying here, safe. Remember C.S. Lewis's Mr. Beaver explaining to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God is not safe. He does not always act the way that we might expect or want him to. He's not to be trifled with by human beings. The way he leads us may not always be bright and sunny. You know that. But he is good. Our husband, our king is altogether good. So you may trust, no, you must trust what he says and who he is. If you love him, you trust him, you believe him. You believe him when you obey his commandments, trusting that in keeping his commandments, as he says, all of them, there is great reward and blessing. You believe that in keeping the Sabbath day holy, you will ride on the heights of the land You believe when he says that you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and he will open the gates of heaven in blessing on your head. You believe 
when he says that you honor father and mother and you will dwell long on the earth. And you believe him when he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. As one expositor has it, love takes every promise which begins whosoever and says, that means me. Loving God means taking him at his word, trusting, believing him. And not only in all things, but as the word here could also be translated, always. Whether the day is bright and shiny or dark and gloomy. Whether your life at this moment is being lived in the basking of the warmth of the sun or, or under dark and menacing clouds threatening to break upon your head. Love trusts God. It says with Job, whose entire existence had been turned into chaos inside and out, painful chaos, said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Job loved God. And that love manifested itself in trust. But we're also called to love others, which means that we must trust them, believing all things in all ways. Not easy. If trusting God, for crying out loud, comes hard to us, then how must trusting others stretch us sometimes wire thin? What is being required of us here? Well, we must believe the best about others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must hold back our eagerness to denounce, our, our tendency to doubt, our inclination to suspicion, our default position to believe and think the worst, and replace those with a slowness to distrust a willingness to trust, a desire to believe, a passion to believe the best and think the best of others, not the worst. In other words, love always gives others, especially fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, other Christians, the benefit of the doubt. That's how we love each other. It's not always easy, is it? You parents, you, you find it sometimes hard to believe your own children, don't you? We ask sometimes, are you really telling me the truth, son? But love believes and trusts. Until there is evidence to the contrary, love believes and love trusts. And takes them at their word. Same with wives for their husbands. Same with husbands for their wives. Same with brothers and sisters in your families, you children, boys and girls. When your brother or sister tells you something, you believe it. You love them, don't you? Then you believe them. And you take them at their word. Until and unless some clear and important evidence is presented. Same with this family, this congregational family. Do we love each other? 
then we trust each other. We believe each other. We take each other at face value. We take each other at our word until some preponderance of evidence presents itself to the contrary. We accept what each other say as the truth. And here's the great thing about that. A context, a community of trust tends to engender trust and trustworthiness. William Barclay tells of the time when the English educator Thomas Arnold became the headmaster of rugby school in England in 1828, instituting, as he did, a completely new way of doing things. Before him, the school, rugby school, had been a terror and a tyranny. Arnold called the boys together and he told them that there was going to be much more liberty and much less flogging, and there had been plenty of flogging. You are free, he said, but you are responsible. You are gentlemen. I intend to leave you to your honor, much to yourselves, and put you upon your honor, because I believe that if you are guarded and watched and spied upon, you will grow up knowing only the fruits of servile fear. And when your liberty is finally given you, as it must be someday, you will not know how to use it. The boys, of course, found it also very difficult to believe. But soon they did by experience when they were brought before him. At first, they continued to make the old excuses and tell the old lies. Boys, he said, would look at them and say, if you say so, if you say so, it must be true. I believe you. I believe your word. The result was that there came a time at rugby school when the boys said, it's a shame to tell Arnold a lie. He always believes you. He believed in them and he made them what he believed them to be. Barclay continues or concludes rather, love can ennoble even the ignoble by believing the best. Oh, we might... Uh, Oh, I don't know. Pick that apart a little bit but, uh, and even question Arnold's methods. But you get the idea. Trust, especially in the regenerate world, in the church, trust that is in the place where the Holy Spirit possesses the hearts of a people as they do ours. Trust actually can engender trustworthiness in those whom love trusts. Is that not exactly how Jesus lived his life? Trusting his Father completely and always and in all things as the exercise of his love for his Father. He loved his Father by trusting his Father. Even anticipating the cross with its unspeakable horrors of body, but especially of soul. Jesus loved his Father and trusted him. Thy will be done. Of all the things it was the expression of, that phrase was the expression of his total, complete trust. And even with anguished voice on the cross, he cries out, trusting, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Every time we'd go back and study the glorious psalm, Psalm 31, where those words were first pressed from the psalmist's lips and pen a thousand years earlier, the psalm that begins 
In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Utter and complete trust in all things, always. And now he trusts his disciples. His often bumbling, his constantly stumbling disciples, I'm talking about you and me, to continue the work that he began of living and carrying and proclaiming the gospel, of advancing his kingdom, of representing his name in the world. Wonder of wonders, he trusts you. He trusts you and me to do this, to bear his name before the watching world and to carry his news. He's entrusted us with the greatest of all treasures, the gospel. Love trusts. It believes all things and always. Second, love hopes all things and always. You might, you might think that believing and hoping are exactly the same thing, but they're not, even though they, they are close, first cousins as a matter of fact. Like believing, hope has its false imitators. We don't hope against hope. Like the world does. Just have hope. You know, one character says to another in the story, well, at least we've got hope. And the question is always begged, isn't it? In what? Hope in whom? This is not Pollyannish, silly, blind optimism, but it is truly optimism. Christians are optimists, not pessimists. When you meet a pessimistic Christian, you have met a contradiction. Love hopes. It hopes first in God because God is and must be our first love. Loving God, we put all our hope in him. This is why our hope is different from the world, utterly different, because our hope is real. Because our hope is fixed on the real and true and living triune God. Because our God is God. Because our God is the all-powerful God, the gracious God, the all-wise God, the God who keeps his covenant of love with us and with our children. And that's why we may put our hope in him, must put our hope in him, no matter how hopeless things seem to appear at the moment. We have all the hope in the world that all will be made right, that all is right. In the sense that our Heavenly Father is working all things, all things, all things for our good and for his glory. Who love him, who are called according to his purpose. All hope is never lost for a Christian because the Christian is God and will never lose him. Or be lost by him. So whatever you're facing, Christian, no matter how dark, hope in the Lord, trust in him. Sometimes because of our situation, often brought on by our own sin, right? We cannot see any light. We cannot imagine how this could possibly have a happy outcome. It just, it just is beyond our imagination. I lunched just a few days ago with a man 
who described to me the day, a fine Christian man. He was a Christian at the time. How the effects of his own sin had backed him into such a dark place that he pulled a bottle of, I don't know, some powerful painkiller, I can't remember the name of it, out of the cabinet, swallowed ten of them, and waited there to die. How pleased he is in hindsight that God in his kind providence brought a friend of a friend in a series of providences to intervene. He thought that day that he was totally without hope. He could not see light anywhere he looked. All was dark all around him. But his Christian friends were able to help him that day to see that there is hope for a Christian. Even when you look around and all you see at every turn is dark. Now you can immediately see how the love of God in the form of hoping all things and always spills so into love for others. Because of the power and the goodness and the grace of God, we're able to hope all things for others too. We needn't, we, we mustn't despair of seeing others changed by the same grace by which we have been changed or seeing ourselves changed by the same grace that we have seen change others. Even as dark as the Corinthian situation has become, and we've seen it in our study thus far of this letter from Paul, remember that he starts his second letter, at least the second one in our Bibles, with this, Our hope in you is unshaken. Can you believe Paul starts his second? After what we've read in this letter, he writes and he says, Our hope in you is unshaken. Only love can produce that kind of hope. For whom are you praying? For whose conversion? For whose sanctification? Love always holds out hope for them, for God to answer your prayers long and hard and sometimes lifelong for them. Or maybe you've stopped praying for him, for her. Go back and trace your steps backwards. At what what point did you decide that there is no hope? That their situation truly is hopeless. On what basis did you make that decision? Throw up your hands. Love does not give up hope on people when they're struggling. Love refuses to take failure as final in other people or in myself. In husbands, in wives, in children, in parents, brothers, sisters, love does not throw up his hands and say that nothing will ever change. Nothing can change. When we give up hope for someone, we give up love. Let's just face it. 
When you stop hoping, you stop loving. Because hoping is loving and loving is hoping for that person. There is hope for the person lost in sin that they may yet receive the gospel and eternal life. How many times have we not heard from this very pulpit about prayers answered even after one has died for a friend or loved one to come into the kingdom of God? There is hope of reconciliation for broken relationships. Love is able to hope such things because ultimately its confidence is in the God of love. On the 7th of September, 1850, a group of seven missionaries set sail from the city of Liverpool. They were under the direction of Captain Alan Francis Gardner, and they were headed for Patagonia, the southernmost tip of South America. They were going to do some missionary work among those most notoriously wicked people in the world. So wicked that even Charles Darwin remarked after one voyage about the ugliness of the natives' lives there. They brought with them six months' worth of provisions and very high hopes for the work of the gospel among the people there and their own calling for the kingdom of God. And yet their trip ended, as one might measure it, in total failure. The natives were hostile. The climate was harsh. The ground unforgiving. The resupply ship failed to arrive until much too late, and so the missionaries died one by one of starvation. Richard Williams was a surgeon on the ship, and when his body was later recovered, the search party also found his diary. And the last page of that diary was his dying testimony to his undying faith in Jesus Christ. You need to imagine this doctor huddled in the hull of his ship, suffering scurvy and all its terrible symptoms, and writing these words as his last testament. Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, Williams wrote, let my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond all expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have exchanged these situations with any man living. Let them also be assured that my hopes were full with immortality, that heaven and love and Christ, which really mean one and the same thing, these things were my soul, that the hope of glory filled my whole heart with joy and gladness, and that to me to live was Christ and to die is gain. Captain Alan Gardner also kept a diary and wrote this in his, Poor and weak as we are, our boat is very Bethel, that is, a house of God to our souls, for we feel and know that God is here, asleep or awake. I am beyond the power of expression, happy. Those words echoed 
around the world when his diary was found after all of them had died and eventually led to the great gospel work among those very people, a work that so changed that society for the better that that even Charles Darwin had to acknowledge how remarkable had been the change among the people there because of the arrival of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love always believes. Love hopes. All things. Amen.